In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures, uh, as we will see in today's gospel, as we see every time we open them up, they're amazing. And one of the things that I want for you uh, as your shepherd, and one of the things, more importantly, that the Holy Spirit wants to imbue you with is knowledge of and love for Holy Scripture. St. Jerome said that ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. And I would contend that the converse is true, that knowledge of Scripture is knowledge of Christ because the Scriptures are all about Christ. And in the scriptures, we encounter Christ. If you read the scriptures carefully and prayerfully in and with the church, your life will be transformed. If you read the scriptures, your life will be transformed. If you read and meditate upon the words of God with a spirit of surrender, saying to your soul, speaking to your soul, the words which Mary said to the attendants at the wedding, do whatever he tells you. I remember I was at a summer camp. I was going into middle school, into sixth grade, even though that was still elementary school in Virginia, way back in the day, going into what is now middle school. And I went to a summer camp, and it was impressed upon me that I needed to encounter the living God in his word, that I really needed to hide the word of God deep in my heart, that I might not sin against him, and that I might know him, and that the word of God would, the Holy Spirit would use it in a way that would transform my life. And I remember getting uh, back on the bus. We were up in upstate New York. They took young children, as young as kindergarten, all the way from Virginia Beach up to Scroon Lake, New York. It was really kind of an incredible thing. And I remember getting uh, on that bus, and I had this simple devotional that they had given me. And it was just like two verses a day. It was made for kids. And God, I don't know why I'm emotional about this. God transformed my life through that. That was really the, the, the beginning for me. Uh, I, I had known the Lord uh, in a way, but I, I was kind of like the disciples before the resurrection where Jesus said to them, I've been with you this long and you still don't know me. <laughs> and it's where I got to know the Lord. This morning, uh, we see this in our gospel, but throughout scripture, the redemptive work of the triune God is presented and understood as new creation. And this motif of new creation, of new genesis, 
is nowhere more present than in the Gospel of John. Think about how the Gospel of John begins. Think about Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does John 1 start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. John 1, in him was life. And his life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. It's quite obvious what John is doing in his prologue. But it's important for us to understand that's not just limited to the prologue, but John carries that through the entire gospel. So keep this in mind as we go through John 2. John 2, verse 1, and we're going to spend almost all our time on just one verse. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Chronologically, the third day in John, here in John 2, is not the third day of the week. You wouldn't have had a wedding on this day. But it was the third day since Jesus' encounter with Nathanael in chapter 1. Symbolically, the third day points to the resurrection, as does the location of the wedding, Galilee. For it is in Galilee that Jesus meets his disciples after the resurrection. In addition, uh, in the chronology of John, this is the seventh day of Jesus' ministry. Moreover, this is the first sign in a series of seven or perhaps eight signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. The seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And what people call the eighth sign is the resurrection of our Lord. Eight being the sign of resurrection and new creation. So I told you the scriptures were amazing and we're just a few words into the first verse. We're just on and the third day. Nothing is arbitrary in Scripture. It's all God-breathed. It's not a throwaway journalistic detail that has no bearing on the meaning of the text, that has no bearing on our lives. It's also not arbitrary that Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding. The turning of water into wine is not a parlor trick. We have to understand this about the miracles of Jesus. He's not just going around, okay, I'm the Messiah, I'm divine, and people are saying, prove it. And then he says, okay, well, pick a card, any card. And then, whoa, you must be the Messiah. No, these are not tricks. They're not magic tricks. They're not just uh, naked shows of strength. What does John call them? They're signs. They are packed with symbolic and revelatory meaning. Numptial, marital imagery and metaphors are used throughout Scripture to speak of God's covenant relationship with His people, to speak of His purposes for mankind and creation. In today's Old Testament lesson, Isaiah 62 the joy which will come 
when God saves His people and dwells with them forevermore, is described in terms of the marital bliss of a newly married couple. The Bible begins and ends with a marriage. At the beginning, the zenith of creation is what? The making of man and woman who bear God's image, who God unites in holy matrimony, who become one flesh. At the end of Revelation, there is, and if I've performed your wedding ceremony, you already know this, at the end of Revelation, there is the marriage of heaven and earth, the coming together of God's space and man's space, the heavenly Jerusalem being described as a bride adorned for her husband. St. Augustine writes this, The Lord was invited and came to a wedding. Is it any wonder that he who came to that house for a wedding came to this world for a wedding. Therefore, he has a bride here whom he has redeemed by his blood and to whom he has given the Holy Spirit as a pledge. He wrested her from enslavement to the devil. He died for her sins. He rose again for her justification. Who will offer such great things to his bride? Men may offer some trinkets, or others uh, from the earth, such as gold, silver, precious stones, horses, slaves, farms, or estates. Will anyone offer his blood? For if he gives his blood to his bride, he will not be alive to take her as his wife. But the Lord, dying free of anxiety, gave his blood for her in order that when he arose... He might have her whom he had already joined to himself in the womb of the virgin. For the word was the bridegroom, and human flesh was the bride. And both are the one Son of God, and likewise the Son of Man. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding because Jesus came for a wedding, the wedding of divinity and humanity, to unite humanity in himself with the living and triune God. At the beginning of Genesis, there is a marriage. And at the beginning of the new Genesis, there is a marriage, which points to the union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ and the union of Christ and his bride, the church. And Jesus here and elsewhere, and this is in the wedding liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer, Here in John 2, Jesus honors and further establishes and further reveals the meaning and purpose of holy matrimony. The marriage of one man and one woman points to the marriage of God and his people, of Christ and his church. It points to the union of God and man. It points to the incarnation, the perfect and permanent union of divinity and humanity in Jesus Christ, two natures in one person. And again, it points to the union of heaven and earth at the last day. 
Marriage, then, is an icon of and a point of contact with those cosmic and redemptive realities. And it's a means of grace. It's a sacrament. It's a means of grace whereby the salvation to which it points, the union with God which it represents, comes to bear in the life of husband and wife and in their family and in the world. If you're in here, well, let's see. Everyone in here today is married, right? Why did you get married? I'm not talking about um, your motivation. Well, I mean, you know, you, you, because you were, you got married for love or for companionship or because you were attracted. You found someone you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. Those are good reasons. But why did you get married? What's its purpose? You are married so that in becoming one flesh with your spouse, you might become one with Jesus Christ. that you might be united and in fellowship with our mystical bridegroom, our mystical spouse, that you might become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That's why you got married. The temporal happiness that can come with marriage, not always there, 24 hours, seven days a week. If we're honest, if you have that, Please come talk to the rest of us and let us know how you're doing that. But it's, it's not primarily about your happiness, even though there's much good and temporal happiness, which is a gift from God. It's about your holiness. It's about your salvation and the salvation of your children and a witness of the gospel to the world. Still in verse 1. It's all there. And the mother of Jesus was there. Mary is never called by her name in the Gospel of John. She is called woman and mother. Mary is the new Eve. Remember, this is the new Genesis. So Mary symbolically is the new Eve, and she's also the symbolic representation of Israel. And therefore, the new or renewed Israel, which is the church. More on that in a moment. We learn in verse 2 that the disciples were also present, at least the ones that had been called. And eventually, the 12 disciples uh, come to picture the 12 new tribes of the new or renewed Israel. Therefore, the Gospels uh, recapitulate... Or, or, as John Bear said, people understand what you're talking about if you simply say, recap. They recap the story of creation and the story of Israel. Put simply, to understand John 2, to, to understand the New Testament, 
We have to read it in the light of the story of Genesis and the story of Israel. So Jesus and Mary and the disciples are at this wedding. And the wine runs out. I mean, this would be a problem at any wedding, but especially a Jewish one in the first century. Wedding celebrations could last as long as a week. And everyone was invited to the party. I mean, the whole community would come. So in an honor, this would be an honor culture, and an honor culture that lacked Amazon Prime or Total Wine or Publix, this would have been utterly humiliating for the social and festal fuel <laughs> to run out so early in the game. I mean, let's just be honest, guys. A dry wedding reception is only going to last so long. It's not going to go a week. I don't care how good the shrimp cocktail is. It's, it's not going to get done. So Mary comes to Jesus saying, they have no wine. And this exchange between Jesus and Mary is somewhat puzzling. First, Jesus rebukes, or at the very least, reproves his mother. And to modern ears, it sounds like he's being disrespectful. I mean, would you ever call your own mother woman? <laughs> I mean, he says woman. This is literal, as wooden and as literal of a translation as I can give you, woman, what is that to you and me? Now, woman is akin to ma'am in English. It's, this part is not a diss. For when Jesus, and we see this, when Jesus is on the cross, what does she say? She says, woman, behold your son. He's obviously not perturbed with her in that uh, setting. Again, why does he call her woman? Again, this is the gospel of new creation. The woman to whom Jesus speaks within that motif, within that imagery, is the new Eve. So whereas Eve prompted the first Adam towards disobedience, the new Eve prompts the second Adam to manifest his glory and his obedience to the Father. But that's not what's puzzling about this exchange. At least that's not what I find kind of odd about it. What's odd is that Jesus seems to give her a hard no. Jesus, they're out of wine. His response, not my problem. <laughs> not our problem. And then Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. If I was one of the servants, I'd be like, do what? He just said he wasn't going to do anything. But then, and, and this kind of gets weird, then Jesus proceeds to do it to turn the water into wine, after he just said, my hour has not yet come. What is going on here? And there's lots of different takes on this. But the end result of Jesus' words and actions is that this sign has eternal significance, eternal and redemptive meaning, rather, rather than just temporal meeting. If Jesus, if, Mary, if, Jesus, if Mary had said they have no wine and Jesus said okay and just did it, it wouldn't be imbued with the same meaning that it receives because what Jesus does, his response to Mary connects 
the turning of water into wine with his death and resurrection, with the salvation of the world, with the wedding supper of the Lamb. St. Maximus of Turin writes this. He says, The most blessed Mary said to him, They have no wine. Jesus answered as though he were displeased. Woman, he said, is that my concern or yours? It can hardly be doubted that these were words of displeasure. However, this, I think, was only because his mother mentioned to him so casually the lack of earthly wine. When he had come to offer the peoples of the whole world the new chalice of eternal salvation. By his reply, my hour has not yet come. He was foretelling the most glorious hour of his passion and the wine of our redemption, which would obtain life for all. Mary was asking for a temporal favor, but Christ was preparing joys that would be eternal. The wine of redemption. I love that. The turning of water into wine was Jesus' first sign. And in his exchange with Mary, he, he, what he does in his response, it's, it's a sign. And his, his response to Mary essentially puts an arrow on the road sign pointing to Calvary. Because the hour of which he spoke, he said, my hour has not yet come. The hour of which he spoke was his death, wherein his blood, to use the words of St. Maximus of Turin, when the wine of redemption would be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. The Eucharistic symbolism is there, that the transformation of water into wine trans, uh, foreshadows the transformation of wine into blood at the Feast of the Holy Eucharist, which is itself a feast, a feast of victory, and also a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb at the last day. We're landing the plane. We're not going to get this whole thing done. It's in good time with the Lord. Jesus instructs them to take six water pots. These water pots were used in Jewish purification rites. And they fill them to the brim. Six is significant. Six is the number of man. Six we know. Even my youngest daughter knows this. That six is one short of seven. And seven in scripture is the number of perfection and completeness. So Mary, symbolizing Israel, symbolizing the people of God, said they have no wine. The law of Moses was good. The law of Moses was necessary for Israel to be her schoolmaster, leading them to Jesus. But the law couldn't bestow life. As the party would die out without wine, so was Israel, so were we destitute and lifeless without the wine of redemption, without the wine of the gospel. But in the fullness of time, 
That is, at the last possible moment, God sent his son. And in Jesus, we have the wine of redemption. Life is in the blood, and we have life by his blood and through his blood. In Jesus, we have the good wine of the gospel. And we have the life of the spirit, which we drink. In Jesus, we're filled to the brim. Our cup runneth over. Verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Brothers and sisters, we have this morning beheld the glory of the Lord Jesus in the scriptures. Let us also believe in him and obey him, doing whatever he asks of us. And let us also adore him. And receive the benefits of his passion through the, holy, through the most holy sacrament that we may be further united with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be all honor, glory, and praise, woe without end. Amen.